fish-filled Midwest lakes to the deep woods of the north, upland prairies filled with pheasants to whistling wings of duck ponds. This is Thursday Night Fan Outdoors. This is the show for hunting and fishing tips, topics, and conversation. Loaded up and ready to go, it's the Captain Billy Hildebrand and Cold Front Mike Curry. Seven o'clock, right on top of it. Yep, the loon is crying. That must mean that it's time for Fan Outdoors. And we are, we are delighted to bring you some outdoor conversation until the nine o'clock hour. It's a beautiful day here again and into the early evening here on Sock Lake on the shores of Sock Lake with a northwest wind blowing in under a sunny blue sky with very few, if any, clouds. Not a boat on the lake. Not since the 4th of July. It's been pretty void of any kind of boating traffic. But before we finish the show this evening, we have stories to tell that I think you will enjoy. And we'll kind of kick it off that way too because we have a story that's really recent as a matter of fact and one that I'm sure that if you are a fisher person man or woman there have been some strange things that have happened to you and I can honestly say with uh, no hesitation that I've never done this particular thing Although I have done other goofy and stupid things, none that I've really regretted a pile. It's not been bad, but just goofy things. And uh, what uh, the story we're about to tell you here on uh, a 100,000-watt radio took place last evening. And if you were listening to Fan Outdoors last Saturday morning, you know that my co-host then was Captain Nolan Colrush. And Nolan has recently returned from Afghanistan where he is a captain and flew for one year a giant helicopter uh, on assorted missions. And you probably want to podcast that particular show because it is up and on demand, and it was it was really fun talking to Nolan about some of some of his experiences, both in the cockpit and also uh, in the field. But he's still here. We've invited him to stay through the weekend and beyond if he so chooses. But. The walleyes have been biting. I'll just leave it at that. We have had wonderful success. And I can tell you before we finish the show exactly how we did it and where we did it. And it actually took place on a couple of bodies of water. And we were on a different one this morning and afternoon and a different one earlier than that yesterday. But we returned back to our home body of water last night. Now, I wasn't part of the crew. I stayed behind. 
And I was told this secondhand because uh, when, in the darkness when the anglers returned, I was probably pretty sound asleep. And I think that's a pretty safe bet. But Nolan Colrush, Captain Nolan Colrush, is here to maybe, maybe I guess the better term would be confess because his buddy, who also works here in Sock Center, Full time armory is a uh, he is captain or sergeant of a squad a squadron of tanks, mm-hmm. and uh, he doesn't get a lot of opportunity to go fishing, and they had success, and he was really really he was excited about the opportunity to prepare a meal of fish because he hadn't had many chances at success but he had success last night so i'll just stop here and let nolan bear his soul on 100,000 watt radio for all to hear i'm ready i'm ready are you are you ready yeah, I'm ready, Bill. Uh, first, I'll, I'll, I'll have to say thanks for having me on again, even under these grave circumstances <laughs> of which I'm about to confess a horrible, horrible fishing tale. Uh, however, it's happened to everybody. and uh, One way or another. And it, it certainly happened to me last night. At uh, There's a couple of Coors Lights probably involved. Uh, probably. I think that might be at play here. But uh, So, yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, it was really good to, to bring a friend out fishing last night. Uh, he's a staff sergeant in a local unit here, uh, Matt, Matt Staff Sergeant Matt Peterson, good friend of mine. We brought him out fishing, and uh, it was tough fishing yesterday, but he set into a giant walleye, and uh, I even netted the fish, if I recall. Uh, I think it was a 25-inch, and it was very exciting, and we got it on the on the boat, and uh, he was as excited as a kid on Christmas morning. I don't think Matt gets to fish as much as some of us or any of us would like to, so uh, catching a trophy walleye like that was 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 pretty amazing for him. Um, well, we continued to fish into the darkness until the bugs eventually got us off the lake. And we told Matt, because he had to get back, um, that, hey, we would, uh, clean the fish up for him. And he was so excited to bring home a <laughs> nice slab of walleye, cook it up for him and his, uh, his girlfriend back home. And, uh, well, as we had docked the boat, Matt had just left. Eric had sent me down. He said, I'll get the knives ready and all that stuff. Here's a bucket. You go get the fish. A five-gallon bucket. Five-gallon bucket. I go down to the dock, a couple of golden retrievers with me, and I open the live well, and I grab the fish, and it was the docile as could be when I first grabbed that girl. But the second I picked it up, and it could see the water, it gave a death shake like none other, flew right (laughs) out of my hands, and splash, and that thing was gone in in a flash. And I still haven't told Matt. <laughs> He's probably listening. <laughs> it could be. And then Eric actually saw me. So then, and then actually coming back up, I dropped the empty bucket. He saw me drop the empty bucket into the lake and thought I dropped all the fish. And uh, that wasn't the case. Just the just the big one into the water. Uh, well, right what happened the... to the? They had one more too. We had one more. I I just it didn't seem right to knife just a single small walleye, and it, that thing was still kicking. So I just I just let that. One I go. see. Okay. <laughs> So we did catch fish, and they, we do have a picture, so nobody can claim that this is just a big fishing tale. There is a picture of the fish. It happened, um, and, yeah, we got 
we're not going to eat that one. Maybe so now I'm I'm actually since because there's a slight chance that Matt's not listening, and if in fact I got to go fish my face off here. If I go catch a 25-inch walleye, he'll know none the same. But once it's cleaned, you can get by with a, maybe a smaller one and just tell him that the other parts weren't good. Very true. I'm a good friend, but I could probably get away with cleaning up a northern or anything and giving That's it true. to him. But I'll make sure it's at least a walleye. <laughs> I think the temptation was to clean up a, one of those bass because that probably would have looked the same oh, way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> I caught a, caught a few of those this morning, too. Um Hey, as as we as the stories are told, we might as well well get into it just a little bit because we've got a couple more minutes. But I had I had another first this weekend too because I don't think there was ever a time in my life that I ever recall seeing seven dogs in the water all at the same time, rousting, playing, jumping, Chasing the same dummy. <laughs> Leaping off the dock. Yeah. Uh, that was great fun. It was. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, one of the neat things, too, I think that people would appreciate also is we had a lab, um, a very big lab, two Britneys, and three golden retrievers, and everybody gets along. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, quite interesting. We had a couple of the young ones like to play a little extra. Yeah. But uh, no, that's good. Yeah, it was it was fun, um, and it, it's great exercise. If people are looking to exercise their dogs rather than getting them out in heat and stuff, if you go to a lake that accepts and allows animals, I would definitely get in the water and let them swim and work those muscles because it's really low impact. Tom Dockin told told us all that not long ago. Mm -hmm. Low impact and excellent exercise and uh, getting them geared up and ready. Um, yeah, got to be very cognizant of the heat with your hunting partners uh, this time of year. Don't... Very, very, very much so. Well, I think that uh, your tale has been told. Your yeah. woe is heard and felt by thousands out there. There we go. Now it's off my chest. Now we can go fishing. I got to go catch a 25-inch walleye right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so what are you what are you gonna do to catch some walleyes? We're gonna change it up. I think uh, last night we were pulling shad wraps. I think we're gonna go to uh, Lindy Rig with leeches tonight. Uh, hopefully that'll work. Okay. All right. <clears throat> yep. Well, my friend, thank you for stopping by, and I know that you guys are gonna have a good time. But you always do. Always great. Thanks for having me, Bill. You bet. That's Nolan Colrush, Captain Nolan Colrush. He's been here. His wife Amanda was here for the 4th, and she had to go back to the Twin Cities, and she'll be arriving again tomorrow, as will um, my youngest son, Chad, and a couple of his buddies coming out here and spending the weekend. We will all be together again and having a great time. Say, so if everybody would like to know, this evening, uh, I, I kind of teased it a little bit last week and said we'd talk a bit about CWD because there's been some some breaking or not breaking news but there's been some research that that came to my attention and uh, I couldn't think of anybody better to talk about the research and the ongoing activities with chronic wasting disease in Minnesota as we work really hard to corral it and keep it from spreading into further into our wild herds and I'd also got to say, too, that chronic wasting disease, as much as the deer farmers, uh, in my opinion, are a lot to blame with it, that's one form of 
uh, prion transmission, and there are other forms too. People could bring could bring some uh, carcasses over from Wisconsin or out west and dispose of them in Minnesota, even though it is illegal now, and uh, probably a couple other ways too. But it's it could be extremely devastating to our wild herd, which is taking place in our sister state to the east of Minnesota, and we don't want that to get here. Uh, we'll talk shortly with uh, Pat Arndt, who is a communications outreach uh, manager for Parks and Trails, about some programs that are available to everybody out there. And also later on in the program, we'll jump all the way out to Devil's Lake, North Dakota, and talk with Aaron McCoy about what's going on out there, what the bite is like, and and what you could expect if you would like to get out there and, and spend some time on the water and chased either pike or uh, big walleyes around. We have been catching our share of big walleyes as I speak and having an absolute blast. Before the program ends this evening, I'll tell you exactly how we have been catching them. I boated a 25-inch recently. That was uh, on Tuesday last week. I believe it was... Thursday, I can't remember, I think I was fishing by myself, I caught a 30 and a half inch and a number of other fish, and it's been great fun. And the story went this last week when uh, when I caught the, the uh, most recent 25, and it's kind of funny, I'll, I'll probably I'll send the, the video short clip to KFAN, and if uh, Chad Abbott wants to put it up on Fan Outdoors, he's welcome to do so. I'll send that after or on a break. But it uh, when I, I set the hook, this is kind of another story, too, because Eric's fiance Danielle, was catching hand over fist, fish after fish after fish, and I wasn't getting anything. And I watched what she was doing, and basically she was doing nothing. And it wasn't dropping the line with bites or anything else. She was just holding on, and the fish grabbed it and hooked themselves. So I tried the same thing. And I, I, something weighted was on the line, and I waited just a little bit. And as I decided to set the hook, I thought I was snagged. So we'll just leave it at that. I'll finish the story a little bit later in the program. Okay? All right. Pat Arndt with the DNR next on Fan Outdoors. Download the iHeartRadio app and take KFAN with you all summer long. You're listening to The Fan. That's after the hour of 7 o'clock on a Fan Outdoors Thursday. It ain't a needle Hopefully in a you're enjoying this evening. Maybe it's cooling off a little bit where you are. I sincerely hope so. Hey, let's welcome into the conversation, or the conversation our next guest who is from the DNR. She is the Communications and Outreach Manager for Parks and Trails Division of the DNR, Pat Arndt. Pat, good evening. Good evening, Billy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great, thank you. Good. Well, 
you uh, you've got some interesting programs going on that have uh, have been very successful and i think some other people might be interested in be partaking yeah absolutely you want to talk about those tonight billy sure okay great we've got our i can program and they're for people who um maybe are new to the outdoors or haven't been spending much time outdoors and they need a little help just to get going and I, and I saw that you did a blog a while ago. It said we all have to start somewhere, right? And this our is I, very true. Yeah, and our ICANN programs are set up for just that. It's just to help people get started in the outdoors. So we have a series of programs we call our ICANN. So there's I can fish, I can camp, I can paddle, I can climb, I can mountain bike, and uh, archery in the parks. Well, Pat, you know, the difficult part for a lot of people, too, is if they don't have a mentor or oftentimes they don't have some significant individual in their life when they're growing up, they don't do it. And especially adults avoid it rather than looking silly. Right. Exactly. Oh, you got it. Exactly. And so these programs will help adults. You can bring your family out to these programs. And we'll have somebody there who is experienced in any of those areas. We'll have the equipment for you. And then because of legacy funding and other funding, it's really at a low cost. So it's for families on a budget as well. So it's not really expensive. And if you look at, let's say, our I Can Fish program. So because uh, over at the DNR, our state parks and trails have teamed up with Fish and Wildlife to provide these programs. They're supported by Legacy Funding and then the Game and Fish Fund, which are, as you know, the license sales and the Wildlife Restoration Fund. So it's only $5 a person, and we'll provide you with an instructor. Kids under 12 are free. There's no vehicle permit required to get into the park. So you'll have an instructor, and then you'll have the equipment, and we'll even send you home with a little mini tackle box too. Pat, is this a, a is this a lengthy process? Do people have to commit a large amount of time for it? Oh, absolutely not. Like it's under probably two hours. Oh. So, yeah, and you can go online and register for it. So we you, you need to do that ahead of time, and then you just pick. Your location around the state, there's probably over a dozen programs left of these I Can Fish programs, uh, some in the metro, some in greater Minnesota. Um, yeah, and you can get out there are, with are, the kids. Are they quite well received? I mean, are there, are there, what kind of feedback are you getting from them? Oh, we're getting great feedback. People just love it. It's just enough to kind of get them going. It gives them that someplace to start. Because, well, in addition to having the equipment there, they'll show you what kind of uh, tackle to use, and they'll talk to you about the kind of fish you might catch in that particular lake. And you know how it is. If you got a five-year-old and you take them out there and they just catch a little sunny... That's all they need yeah. to get them hooked on this, right? Their eyes are big, yeah. and they're excited, and they want you to take their picture. There is nothing better in the whole wide world, Pat, and the whole mystery of fishing that 
that thing that's underneath the water becomes a squiggly thing on my line and the glee's <laughs> the excitement is irreplaceable i remember it so so well yeah uh, and and, and it, you know the other thing with the fishing and i the, the other activities also but especially fishing they can do it for the whole life and it's probably there's a dock there are docks around all around the state that people can fish from if they don't have access to a boat but you'd be really surprised at the enjoyment and the hours that can be spent um, and each time you go you find something magical that's out, about there out there with mother nature too so it's it's very cool yeah with the i can camp pat what's the i can camp have to do well, the I Can Camp program, um, we provide the tents for you. We actually provide some really cushy air mattresses and cooking equipment. So all you have to do is go online and pre-register and pay your registration fee and then show up and we'll have instructors that will show you how to set up the tent. We won't set it up for you, but the idea is to teach you how to set it up, how to build a fire, you bring your own food. We give you a suggested menu for it. We'll show you how to cook over a cook stove. And then there'll be lots of activities for the kids. And we're finding that when people do this, they go to one of these programs, and it just helps them see how much fun it is to spend a night outdoors. We've had people who were afraid of spiders and bugs and and then by the end of a 24-hour just overnight in a state park with a group of people, they're, like, saving the spiders. And they're, you know, <laughs> they're showing other people, look at this spider that's crawling up my arm. And instead of going, eek! <laughs> um, you know, and I'm, Pat, I am continually amazed how good the food tastes when out and camping. And mm -hmm. when you're at home and trying to replicate that, it doesn't taste nearly as delicious. Absolutely not. There's something about it over that campfire and over the cook stove that it just tastes better. And what we find, too, is that it's groups of families, so you'll be with some other families when you go on one of these, that they make connections amongst themselves. Yeah. And sometimes they stay friends after this and start camping together. You know, there's something about the outdoors that connects people to each other. Well, Pat, once again, how um, how can people? Where do they find it online? You said they can sign; they have to sign up online. But where can they find it? And the list of everything. And I'm sure that it must entail; it must describe and in, in in detail a bit about what both of, all the programs are. Oh, absolutely! Yes, you just go to mndnr.gov and you'll see the ICANN stuff right there. You can uh, search for ICANN you know, in your Google search if you want as well. Just ICANN, Minnesota State Parks and Trails. Or if that ICANN Fish program that we were talking about earlier interests people, you can go there and find that out as well. And that website is just chock full of information because you can fish for free in most Minnesota State Parks, and where you can fish for free is online on that web, web address. We also have free fishing loaner equipment that you can borrow. Just stop in the park office, 
where they have that is listed online as well. And you mentioned those fishing piers. There's over 1,600 of them around the state. Those are also at mndnr.gov, just loaded with information and ways for people to get started in the outdoors. Well, Pat, and there's it's never too late either. That's the other thing. I, I think that people would spend more time together as a family. Our whole society, outdoors that is, our whole society would be so much better off. And yeah. it's just in the dialogue and the communication and the excitement and everything that sometimes we tend to lose when we give our kids up to the electronic games and such. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you'll make a memory with your family that you, your kids will remember forever. And it doesn't even yeah. have to be the parents. It can be the aunts and uncles or grandparents or, you know, whoever you are connected to kids. Just get those kids outdoors, and you'll just make and memories. If, it's, that, if there's yeah. a, a neighbor wants to bring a child that doesn't necessarily uh, belong in their family, can they do that if it's with permission of the other folks? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. And okay. whoever whoever that person is that's, you know, important to the child, that's get them outdoors. Um, that's what we really want to see. And sometimes the neighbor or the aunt or the uncle is the person that has more time than the parents do. So, yeah, yeah and they're, they're interested Excellent. in it. So we just want to help them get the kids outdoors. Excellent. Pat, thank you so much. I appreciate it more than you'll probably know. Thank you, Billy. I hope you have a great summer. Thank you. You also. Thank you. That's Pat Arndt, the Communications and Outreach Manager for Parks and Trails Division of the DNR in Minnesota. I, I, I highly, highly recommend that. It will pay dividends. Getting your kids outside when they're still in your household is so important. And if you don't believe anything else I tell you, Please believe that. Uh, you'll find, you'll find, you'll discover parts of yourself that you didn't know was there. And I just, I just think it's really, really important. It was for me and my boys and my family, at least. And I, I know that for a fact. We'll take a pause and we will be back. We'll be joined by Dr. Lou Cornicelli. Not only will he be a guest, but he's also a friend. We've talked with Lou a number of times here on Fan Outdoors and always marvel at some of the things that that we, we learn. And tonight will be absolutely no different, okay? Trust me in that, too. We'll be right back after this with Lou next on Fan Outdoors. team is uh, left the premises heading out to the water and perhaps we'll get a report later on because they're going out on sock and one of the places they fish is right in front where I can see them and if anybody else is here they could too in fact if our next guest was here he'd be able to keep an eye on them and probably <laughs> keep his reel on his rod I don't know that's another possibility <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Lou Cordicelli, Dr. Lou Cordicelli joins us right now. We've uh, we've had some 
pretty fun times, and that one time in particular was great fun. Lou, how are you, sir? I'm doing. I'm doing well. Is Eric out there teasing you? Uh, yeah, he's yeah, he's he's doing a great job of it, my friend. Huh. I, I know his supervisor, so I can talk to that person. There you go. I wish you would please have a have a conversation. Um, as we have, as we chuckle, but anyway, the. Uh, last week, and, and you mentioned you were listening also, and and I said that uh, we were going to talk a little bit about chronic wasting disease, a little more, because I think it warrants some additional conversation uh, on the air, because uh, I would hope people begin to take it very seriously if they aren't already, because it's a pretty serious proposition, and it could lead to a, a huge, much huger proposition. Isn't yeah, that accurate? Potentially, yeah. Potentially, yeah. Um, you're talking about the macaque study. Yes, I am, and that, yeah. that, that, that's that's. You probably better be better better explain it than I. But it, it sounds one of the things was I, I always heard it. It hasn't really affected CWD. Hasn't affected humans yet. Yeah, there, there's a couple things. You know, first off, that little teaser on that study is really all any of us have ever seen. That the the actual paper hasn't gone through peer review, so we only really know what we all read in the abstract. And, and there, you know, there's a couple things going on. The first is, is you measure the ability to be infected different ways. One is that that basic science where they do the inter, intercerebral intercerebral injection of the of the brain matter. And the animal gets sick. Well, that's been done with with cows and transgenic mice and other species. So we don't kind of view that as as, as earth shattering for us because the likelihood of you running into a syringe full of CWD prions is pretty slim. So that that's not the issue right. for us. It's what was the what was the treatment for the macaques and how much were they fed? You know, over what period of time? You know, is it a is it an amount that would equate to something that a human might eat? And then you know, so that that's the stuff that gets us thinking. And we'll wait and see the you know for the results. But the the underlying message obviously is is kind of what the state agencies have been saying for years is that even if there isn't a direct link, you shouldn't eat a deer with CWD, which which again then underscores why we do what we do. So I think we'll all wait and see what the results say. But, but certainly it's 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 never good news if there is a human health link at some point in our in the future. Lou, what if we've pl- played what if? What if there was a human health link? And I kind of did that in my mind after reading the the abstract or that short short brief paper, and I thought I, I came up with pretty scary stuff. Right, you know, and even from the perspective, you know, if this becomes a food safety test, you know, we've long said that this is a deer disease that affects long-term populations and so on and so forth. But if it becomes a food safety test, well, then who pays for that testing? You know, what, uh, it, it costs us, I think, twenty-five, you know, around twenty-five bucks a sample, give or take. Um, you know, the state can't pay that kind of fee. We couldn't even manage those samples. So just the logistics of sampling everybody's gear for food safety reasons would be pretty insurmountable. Not, not to mention, you know, the the, the real pro, the real thing was that the people are going to quit hunting. We know that. We know they've done that in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, and then how do we manage deer populations? How do we manage wildlife in general you know, when all of our management is really, or a lot of our management is based on, on license sales 
that we don't have those hunters uh, harvesting deer and enjoying the outdoors the, the way you know that we've come to enjoy them. And so it, it, it would end up being a real game changer for wildlife agencies and society in general. So again, that just goes back to the, you know, it's not doom and gloom. And I, I, I you know, I hear it every once in a while that we're making this stuff up. But the reality is, is that we don't want to be put in a situation where we have to face that. And that's why we respond the way we respond. And, and you know, we there, there's a lot of people that complain about not enough deer. And then I heard the opposite end of the spectrum in the news this last week where a motorcyclist in western Minnesota in Big Stone County, I believe, ran into a, a deer on the bike and his passenger died. And that's the other thing, the car deer collisions and, and some of the other things can be that can be extremely detrimental to health, too. Right, exactly. You know, we look at, at deer populations, again, as, as a societal issue. And if you if you look at the deer planning process that we're going through right now, that's bringing in experts and interest interest groups from a variety of disciplines, not just deer hunters. And we're, we're off, you know, we just got through a couple of years of, of really being criticized for, for mismanaging deer and not enough deer and so on and so forth. And lo and behold, we made a call to the weather gods. We had two good winners, and we're back to deer again. So, um I think we all, we always worry about that. You know, we're not in the pocket of the insurance lobby or anything like that. But the reality is, is we have to manage deer for a societal benefit, and and we try and do that. And and knowing that, you know, accidents happen, um, and, and and bad things happen when densities get too high. So, I mean, you're, as, as a deer manager, you're constantly thinking about a hundred different things at once and trying to balance a lot of those things while while people are chirping in your ear for what they want. As as somebody who is not connected with the the managing of any population whatsoever, I don't hear as much anymore about people complaining about their flowers or or people complaining about co- crop de- depredation. Um, I, I don't hear those complaints anymore. Are they still out there? Oh yeah, they are. You know, and they they've obviously been ramping up. Uh, you know, you're starting to see. I travel a lot around the state, and you're, you're you're back. You know, we're getting back to the point where we're starting to see deer in fields in the middle of the day. Now, I think densities are back, are, are are back up. You know, you can we can argue about what level they're back up to, but but they're much higher than they were um, in the late 2000s. You know, you know, it, from 10 to say 13, 14. But we yeah, we get those we get those complaints. You know, we issue summer shooting permits for depredation, um, but a lot you know the general public doesn't hear what the area wildlife manager gets on a daily basis. And we're, we do see quite a bit of ag-related deer damage, especially in the summer, as those crops start to get get pretty palatable and, and, and deer like to be in them. So, yeah, with those those calls are, are coming into our area staff on a daily basis. In fact, I, I signed a shooting permit today because the chief's on vacation. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're actively managing deer in, in, in depredation situations throughout the year. And, and just because folks aren't hearing it on the news or seeing it on TV doesn't mean that it's not happening. So and it's definitely been increasing with those increasing densities. What what what's give us a couple of examples of some something that might get a depredation permit uh, approved? Well, they they need to have a, a history with the department. Uh, in other words, um, you can't just call one day and say I want to shoot ten deer because they're eating my soybeans. Uh, we have to they have to fill out what we call a CDMA or a Cooperative Dam- Damage Management Agreement. They have to demonstrate that they allow public hunting. They have to demonstrate they're trying to resolve their problem. 
and and oftentimes that just doesn't work. You know, these deer show up in your you know in your fields right now, and and the landowner is doing everything they can to mitigate that damage, yet they still have it. So we'll issue permits under pretty pretty tight constraints um, when it's kind of the last option. We'd much rather they we not be forced to issue shooting permits, but but when we start when we're issuing them, it's indicative of a larger problem and typically a long term problem. So do those the depredation permit itself is that a, a limited number of animals that they're allowed to take? Correct. They'll be issued, uh, you know, five or ten, or depending on what the situation dictates. And those animals, there needs to be a disposition plan, so those animals go, um, they get donated to, to folks in need, and they, they have to be done under you know, certain constraints. We do, we just don't let people go willy-nilly on the landscape. They're designed to allow individuals to to help resolve their depredation problems with a, with a pretty clear plan as to how that's going to play out from point A to point B. And, and like I said, it all it also includes that element of are you are you managing your deer population during the fall hunting season? And if and if you know a landowner can't not allow access, then come to us and say, oh, "I want to shoot twenty deer." It's like, well, how many people did you let hunt last year? Well, nobody. You know, then good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so got it. You know, it's all part of a, a longer, you know, bigger strategy. Well, the other the other project that I I'm kind of familiar with, not not really, but I am, is the moose research, the the moose collaring that's been ongoing for a period of time. What's the status of that, and is it about to wind up, or is that ongoing yet? No, it's it's about winding up, and we're going to start you know getting those papers out and getting some recommendations in. Um, we're going to start blowing off the collars here this summer. The LCCMR portion of the project ended on June 30th. In other words, that funding, um, with our with our shifting CWD priorities and, and the fact that we have less than 30 collars left on the air, we Michelle and, and Eric and and I and others decided, well, let's just blow the collars off, uh, get the data that we can off those collars, and kind of move into the next phase of our of of the work that we do. And I I think what gets lost on folks because you see so much going on. Is the same as you know. The same people who are doing the moose mortality research are also running our, our rather extensive CWD program, and also yeah. the avian influenza program and any TB stuff that comes up. So the same four people are really really doing about nine jobs. So it's uh, the moose project's going to wind up. We're going to shift into CWD surveillance mode. We do have a, uh, a CWD uh, deer movement study that's going to start this winter, and the Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund uh, just uh, gave us the first boost of funding for that. So we're going to radio call some deer in the southeast to kind of get a sense for how these animals move across the landscape and uh, potentially spread this disease, um, you know, to other areas. So we, there's, a, there's a lot going on, and, you know, boost is winding down, deer is going to ramp up, and who knows what's next on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's certainly so, probably not a shortage of things either. Always, always something, uh, right? Yeah, there always is. And uh, can you stay with us through a pause for one more segment? You bet, sure. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that the the deer uh, movement study that you referenced. I'd love to hear. I I don't know much about that, and I'd love to hear more about it. That uh, that is coming up next. Uh, a brand new study that's going to, I don't know if it, we'll find out if it's ever been done before, but I know that all of us have an idea about where we think and how much we think deer move. be interesting to know how much they really do move. And I know that when, well, 
I'll just leave it at that, and we can talk to uh, Dr. Lou Cornicelli about that. I know that they moved further than we thought they did, at least up in the northwestern part of the state. I know that for fact. But we will take a very brief pause and be back with more wildlife conversation right here on Fan Outdoors. Broadcasting from the Bryant Heating and Cooling Studio, this is Minnesota Sports Station, FM 100.3, KFXM, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Most of the time, I still raise a little cane with the boys. Our guest with us right now on Fan Outdoors is Dr. Lou Cornicelli from the Department of Natural Resources. Lou is, uh, he has spent time out in the western states a number of years. He comes, he, when he came to Minnesota, he came with a wealth of knowledge and experience. You know, the things that he's told me that they really they really come to fruition. And there are people that that run with hearsay as fact, and it is absolutely not. Uh, I think, well, let's bring him into the conversation, too. Lou, I remember when people were complaining about population and you said... Uh, yeah, just they multiply really, really quickly. And I remember when the antler point restrictions came on, you said that the north, southeastern Minnesota was an ideal, ideal area for that because uh, it, it raised big, large deer, and it raises real large deer. But all those things have come to fruition, my friend. Yeah, it, the southeast was kind of, you know, was kind of interesting. Unfortunately, you know, we were dealing with our CWD outbreak in that same area. But, yeah, for sure. I mean, we collected a, a, quite a bit of data before we did the APR, and it wasn't really that difficult to predict um, what would happen. You know, we also knew that the first year of the APR was not going to be pleasant for, for, for several of us, and it wasn't. Yeah. But then it got then it got better over time, and, and now, you know, folks, folks love it. You know, I think you'd get far more pushback if, if we tried to eliminate it, um, you know, they then kept it going. I, of course, I'm out of the big game program now, but I still, I still work tech stations down there, and you know, there's hardly anybody that, you know, that that speaks out against it. And even the ones who don't like it say it's worked. So it's one of those regulations that that yeah, it did, it did pretty much what we thought it would do. You know, ma- managing densities is, is a little bit tougher to measure, but it certainly flipped the age, age structure in a, just two or three years. With the the study that you were mentioning uh, before we went to break before, the movement study, uh, explain to us a little bit more about that and what you hope to accomplish with it. Yeah, this is this is pretty exciting. Um, Wisconsin is doing something similar. Um, so we're, we're going to try and adopt some of, you know, some of the questions that they have with their research. But for us, you know, there's a couple things going on. You know, number one, we really don't know definitively how CWD, you know, got to Preston, Minnesota. You know, we've got our various theories that are, that are some are plausible, some not so much. But, you know, one of the, the, the hypotheses is can deer migrate across this vast landscape and infect new areas. So 
since we're since we have this recent infection, and, and certainly we can argue with other folks about if it's recent or not, but we we think it is. Um, we do have this opportunity to put radial collars on deer outside of our CWD zone and see what see how they move across the landscape. In other words, we, we put uh, collars on younger deer. Uh, the basically the immigrators, the ones that leave their natal range and set up a home range somewhere else, and we can we can make some. Uh, you know, build some predictive models of risk. And, and in this landscape, uh, with this deer population, what's the probability that you're going to get an infection in what area over what period of time? So our goal with this is to kind of figure out like, how do these deer move across the landscape? We, we really just don't know. Um, and that'll, that's to answer question number one. But at the same time, we have an opportunity as, as you know, one of our audit findings to the, the, uh, the OLA was to collect data to improve our model function and structure. And, that, and so this will help with that as well. So we're going to be putting about 100 radio collars out this winter, hopefully keep that sample size up for the next three years. And part of that is as those deer die, we get a good handle on what the mortality factors are, what are the mortality rates, you know, harvest versus non-harvest, and, and maybe put some more, a little bit more uh, data into our population model. So there's a couple of people who are fronting the project. One's Chris Janelle, our wildlife health research scientist, who's published extensively on CWD um, in the past and is uh, kind of leading a lot of the research here. And also Dr. Andrew Norton, who's the new uh, farmland uh, deer research scientist in the Bedelia office. His background is in basically quantitative ecology, deer population modeling. He knows a lot of that Bayesian stats and all that other stuff that hardly any of us understand. Um, and he's going to be looking at it from the population perspective. And then Michelle, Eric, and I are going to kind of be logistic support for the project. So there's, it's, it's going to be pretty neat, and hopefully we'll be able to answer some questions about how this southeast deer population behaves and also, you know, what parameters can we adjust in our model to give us better um, uh, uh, power as we as we try and estimate deer densities to pick management designations. So that's kind of the goal of the project. Like I said, it was just we just got emerging issues money from LCCMR, you know, the Environment Natural Resources Trust Fund for the first phase of the project. We'll be up for uh, full funding with LCCMR this fall when they do the, the their regular round of funding. So we're hoping to get a fairly large project funded over the next three to four years. So it's pretty exciting. It's nice to be able to do a little research in the, in the face of having to deal with this emerging infection. So hopefully we can answer some questions. That's a long-winded answer to an eight-word <laughs> question, so I apologize. <laughs> no, that's okay, because I, I, think that, I think it's important, Lou, because many, if not all, the deer hunters are so, are so locally oriented into the just the area they hunt. Did, did we see deer? Did we yeah. do that? Did I do this and I want that? And the picture is so much larger, and I find that at least I think this is accurate, that if more people would be able to see a bigger picture, they gain a better understanding about the process that needs to be handled. I, I agree. You know, we often, I mean, and I think one, well, first off, I think we have to acknowledge that passion. I mean, deer hunters, you know, I've been, I'm coming up on 25 years of working, you know, with ungulate management and, and deer hunters are passionate. You know, they care about lots of different things. Um, but you're right. I mean, oftentimes they're like a coyote staring at a rabbit, tunnel vision, and um, which is fine, but, 
but appreciation of the bigger picture is also important. So I think we, I think we get we generally get there, and I think I do think that this CWD uh, um, event has solidified, has solidified folks. You know, we've got some we've got some detractors that they criticize us for you know the sun that comes up or goes down. So I don't pay too much attention to that, but I think folks are taking this seriously, and I think. Um, they don't want to see this disease get established, and I think that's a, that's a good thing. And if we can build off that energy and that desire to learn, then I think we'll be in a good place. And the other, the only other thing I'll say about the this project is that you know we've got some permission for for blocks of private land to catch deer on, but if you're a landowner in in uh, Winona, Houston, or or Fillmore counties, and you uh, are interested in maybe having deer caught on your property, as we try and get a good sample size spread across the landscape, you know, give me a call. It, it may not work out. You know, if you got five acres in the you know in Chatfield, it's not going to work. But if you own a hundred acres that we could run a helicopter through, then we may be interested in talking to you. So if you want to help us with the study by giving us permission or know someone and give us permission, by all means, you know, give us a shout and we'll try and figure something out. Lou, are the collars that will be used for the deer study for this movement study, are they, uh, will they have about the same access to information that the moose collars did? Um, in, yeah, that's a good question. In many respects, there'll be many moose collars. Um, we still have to figure out, you know, a, a lot of it is dependent on, the more you ask the collar to do, the more battery power it takes and the, and the, the shorter period of time the collar lives. So you have to scale the collar down to the size of the animal and then make some trade-offs uh, as to what you want that collar to do. So the, those trade-offs would be how many locations per, per day, how often does it communicate, can we, can we uh, uh, change the collar programming on the fly or not. So a lot of the, the technology that's in these collars, you know, it's it's dependent on what you're trying to do. You know, the moose collars can be huge because moose are huge. Uh, uh, a year-old deer is pretty small, so it's going to have a smaller battery. Uh, we won't be able to do things that we would do with the moose collars. But functionally, yeah, the same stuff. It'll be able to text us if the animal dies. Um, it'll be able to record uh, long. We're looking at migration, you know, animals that, young animals that leave and set up a home range somewhere else. So we'll be able to determine, like, when when animal X has decided to go five miles west, we'll, we'll know that in pretty much real time. So, yeah, the technology evolves every day, but and in many respects, there'll be many moose collars. Will the will the uh, will the the research team be going after the animals if they uh, if they do die? Yeah, it it won't be a cost specific mortality project per se. So we're not we're not going to be looking at did this deer die from, you know, brainworm or liver flukes or or, or winter ticks, but we'll but we'll be able to get the collars back and and likely infer some some level of mortality. Now recognizing that the you know the majority of deer mortality, especially in areas that don't have winter, are people, whether that's cars or hunting seasons or or some other anthropogenic methods. So we'll be able to get the collars back, but I doubt. We're going to be looking at it from the perspective of, you know, this deer died last Thursday from a, a tick bite, you know. But we'll be able to infer um, mortality for sure, and that'll, that'll feed into the population model. And then it may be situationally dependent as to what actually killed the animal. But it'll, it'll, be, a, it'll be a shot. Is there another study going on up in northwestern Minnesota with elk, Lou? There is. Yeah, that's the, that study wraps up. 
Oh goodness, what month is this? Wraps up uh, end of the end of the calendar year, uh, around end of December. So that's another uh, uh, LCCMR funded project where we're looking at um, basic elk biology in the Northwest. We we know very little, uh, both from the biological and the social side. We have two studies going on. The biological one is is a radio collar study. Uh, we put 20 collars out. We've only had two animals die in the last year and a half, and they've both been health related reasons. And we've got a graduate student down at Mankato, uh, Elisa Freeman, who's looking at home range and, and habitat use of these elk that live in these, this highly agricultural mix of public-private range landscapes. And then the other study is a human dimension study where we're looking at uh, attitudes and, and perceptions of elk um, in the elk range and outside the elk range. So because our limiting factor of elk in Minnesota is not habitat, it's people. So we have to determine at what level uh, will people accept an existing population and then thinking about what's going on in the east central part of the state with Mike Schrake, um, uh, with Fond du Lac and the University of Minnesota and looking at perceptions and habitat availability of elk uh, in, in a new area uh, in the northeast. So there's a, there's a bunch of stuff going on with elk. Um, I don't know where it'll lead to <laughs> in terms of animals. <laughs> Uh, being moved or, or populations coming up or going down, but we're we're going to have a we are, we do have an opportunity and we do are are doing some work to kind of get a really good sense of what our elk population is doing and is there public support for an elk population someplace else? So um, the last two years have, have been pretty exciting for elk because we really haven't done too much and now all of a sudden there's a a bunch going on. And LCCMR <laughs> actually funded the East Central Northeast uh, elk, elk feasibility study. Is the is the elk afflicted with the same diseases that moose are? Um, they are. Um, they 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 do a little bit better with everything. Elk elk are pretty tough. I think uh, I, I always I had always joked around that it's, you know when the mushroom cloud shows up there'll be cockroaches and elk probably. Um, they pretty much can survive anything, but they they are challenged by deer diseases. They get brainworm like moose do, but they're a little bit more resistant to it. Um, they have liver flukes, which are, uh, you know, another you know, snail disease related to deer, um, but they can generally power through it. Uh, but we do see mortality from both of those. Um, so they are susceptible, but not nearly to the degree that moose are. Uh, the elk that went to Kentucky um, from 97 to 2002, one of the concerns was, was brainworm. And they, they lose some calves, but that no one can argue that population isn't doing well. I think the last last number was twelve or 15,000 elk. So um, a good, robust population that's relatively healthy can overcome brainworm related to white-tailed deer. And the last question, Lou. Uh, I understand that you are spending some time on horseback. I am. I'm actually going um, elk, horseback elk hunting in Colorado this year. I, I decided that after last year's um, horseback elk hunt in Montana without the horses, I was done with that. Um, <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm gonna, I'm going on horseback. And, and my, my friends joke, they look at me funny. You know, what do you mean you're riding a horse? And I, I fail to mention that when I worked in Utah for seven years, we, we rode a lot. So short Italians from New York can ride horses. Um, it's just I'm a little bit rusty. So uh, so we, we spent a, a weekend on horseback just to get my horse legs under me. Uh, and I've, I've got to learn, I've got to relearn my knots and horse etiquette and all that other stuff that goes along with being around animals that, you know, like to kick and bite. So 
Um, but it was fun. You know, hopefully it'll be a little bit uh, uh, physically more rewarding than my Montana hunt, which really hurt a lot. <laughs> I understand that. You know, the only thing, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the horses in the back end of the transom, so I think I'm just going to have to leave them back there. <laughs> no, I, I, I like it. So we'll, we'll see. I, you know, I, we'll, we'll see. I'm sure there'll be plenty of good Lou did this stories like there are with everything else that I do. <laughs> I hope, I'm, I'm sure that we're, I'm going to be privy to them one way or another. Look forward to that, Lou. Yeah, it might not be the radio ones, but you'll get some stories. Hey, well, that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Hey, Lou, thank you for your time this evening. I appreciate it a whole bunch, my friend. And um, we need to go fishing again sometime soon because there's stories there, too, that probably can have made it on the radio. I, I told Eric it's not illegal to invite other people to go fishing, so uh, hopefully I'll yeah, get he, an invite here. <laughs> I hope so too. If not, right. I can extend the invite because I can. I've learned how to catch him one way out here too. In fact, he just yeah. went by on the in the boat. <laughs> I'm just I'm just ashamed, or not not ashamed or sad, but shocked to hear that you're now a walleye fisherman. So I guess that's, that's something I need to I need to come to grips with. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm a walleye fisherman for one one reason only, and that's because right now they're biting. And I said to somebody, it'll take me about oh, two or three hours of not getting a bite, and I'm back to my roots, back big time. That's exactly. And the nice thing about them is they taste like whatever you cook them in. So like, they can't be that. This is very true. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. More than I care to like. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, Lou, thanks, buddy. You bet, Billy. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. That's Lou Cornicelli, Dr. Lou Cornicelli. And uh, he, one of the things that I do enjoy with our relationship is that Lou comes down to the state fair on an annual occurrence, and we broadcast from the state fair on the night or nights that we are down there. And it's always great fun and uh, a great time. In fact, that's, gosh, that's coming right around the corner, and it's much sooner than I would hope that it is. I'm enjoying summer too much right now. But then, as we all know, from summer and the cool evenings and the shorter days comes fall, and that brings with it a whole bunch of more enjoyment. And that little white dog, those little white dogs of mine have a tendency to fly around the field, too. And won't be long we can get back out there. Today is the last day that, in fact, tonight the uh, the night fishing ban on the Lacs for or the fishing ban, all the fishing ban goes on in effect for Malax from today until the 27th of July for walleyes. Other fish are still fair game if you're uh, wanting to go and fish the best lake in the United States for smallmouth bass. So says Bassmaster. You can do so. That's fair game. And I would encourage you to do that. Walleyes are fun. So are bass. And so are smallmouth, especially. A brief pause. We'll come back and talk with Aaron McCoy about walleyes on Devil's Lake in Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Next on Fan Outdoors. Had a shiny little beamer with the rack top down. Sitting in the drive, but she wouldn't get out. Dogs were all barking and a wagon around. And I just we are back. Fan Outdoors coming at you until the 9 o'clock hour. A couple of segments left. We're going uh, 
all the way out to Devil's Lake, North Dakota right now, where uh, the man that uh, will be our guest in just a moment guides out there. And he also has houses for rent. And if you're a waterfowler, you can't go wrong out in the Devil's Lake area. If you are a walleye fisherman, you absolutely can't go wrong out there. I spent a day in the boat with Aaron McCoyd. Bob St. Pierre and I did a few years ago, and he knew that I didn't want to troll. And we threw little crankbaits up toward the bank in about three to four feet of water and caught walleyes until my arms were about four inches longer than they started. So let's bring him into the conversation and see if what patterns are working now out in the Devil's Lake area. Aaron McCoy, thanks for joining me, sir. Well, thanks for calling, Billy. Boy, we just it, got off the lake. We actually fished a little longer than normal today, but man, the fish were biting. I, oh, I mean, you would think, really, we, you would think, ninety degree temperatures that the fish would start to slow down a little bit. But yeah. the last two days have been nothing short of phenomenal. I mean, if you've not got uh, gotten out here, you got to come out and try it. So. Oh, Aaron, I've told people for a long time that needs to be on your bucket list of things to do because once you make it once, you're going to go back. Right. So as I've expanded a little bit recently, we're just checked out a couple more guys here just in the last 10 minutes, and, and they said they've never been here. Friends of the family said if you're going out, you got to try it. Well, as these they're two different parties of five and six guys have left, they're like, man, we will definitely be rebooking. Here's our money for next year. This was phenomenal. And they're like, man, we didn't realize. We, we've walleye fished all over, but we've never realized it was this good. So. Uh-huh. Now, if somebody comes out like these gentlemen that just are, are leaving now that you're with, Aaron, but they're going to be out there. Let's say they bring their own boat. Is that something they can duplicate after they get a clue about how to operate and how to maneuver the lake, or is it is it a tough lake to fish? Um, you know, definitely a great question. If the, if the gentleman or, or, or woman knows something about driving your boats, reading maps, you can come out and do this on your own, absolutely, and you can make it affordable. Um, we have houses for people that want to come and do it on their own, Everything is supplied. We have pots, pans, dishes, towels, grills. We have a commercial fryer for people to cook their own fish with. Um, it's really a, a first-class you know, operation as far as for people to go fishing and, and keeping it very reasonable. I mean, right down to about 40 to $50 a night for everything. So very good on, on, on the lodging, do-it-yourself kind of group. Is it something, though, that would they would benefit by say going out with you on the first one of the first trips if there's a family that's out there. Absolutely, I I would I I do suggest to a lot of people whether you do the first day with a guide or you do your first trip with a guide. I would say do the first trip, leave your boat at home, come out, enjoy the to relax a little bit. We'll show you different areas of the lake, move you around. Uh, and then you can make your own decision from there how you would want to proceed for the following year. But there is quite a few people that do come up for a week, and they, they hire us for one or two days in there, uh, and then they do it from there. 
and they've been very happy. People can go out and duplicate it and do it on their own afterwards. The biggest thing is is just knowing where the the, the shallow water from the the not the hazardous waters are. So, and we can are the, you know, point those out on a map. Are Lake a Master are Lake, can... are Lake Master chips are they accurate in, in depth detail showing some of that, Aaron? Um, they are very accurate if you're willing to. I still suggest have a paper copy with your electronic copy. And the reason why is when you're sitting in your hotel or in one of my deluxe condos that you get to sit in, you get to, you know, look at it visually as you kind of scroll around the lake and see what depth this is or that is. If you're running a hummingbird, you can change your depth to where the anything less than five or six feet is bright red. So you know whenever you get there, that's going to be dangerous waters. And then no. the nice thing with that hummingbird, you can do it at again at, at about eight, nine feet, change another color because that's where the weed edges are. So this time of the year, we're sitting on the outside edges of the weeds. We're jigging, lindy rigging, pulling spinners, pulling crankbaits, casting crankbaits. Honestly, it's anything you want to do, and all of them are working. So, I mean, we, we had a little fishing tournament today. It was so fun. The guys wanted to do something different. I said, well, how about we make teams, and we'll do I'll be the accountant, and you guys will, will, will write down everything for three hours, and we'll just see how many fish we catch. Well, we had over 50 linear feet of walleye today in three hours. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one way to do it. All said and done, the two teams – we're 22 inches off from each other at the end of the day. So that was very even all the way through. The biggest was 26 inches. Everybody had a great time. So, With the, with the fishing, as good as it's been for as many years as it has, Aaron, can, and I know it's a huge body of water, but can it sustain that? You know, I honestly think that we are seeing a little bit smaller in size. We're not seeing quite as many of that 20 to 24-inch stuff. We're seeing a few, but not as many as we did 15 years ago. At that time, the lake was still growing. It was a lot of fresh water. With that fresh water and weeds, you get all the extra shrimp. You get the extra fertile ground, the microorganisms, all this extra stuff that's in the lake that so many people don't think of. Um, That very fertile water may help grow those fish bigger and faster well now we're starting to recede a little bit we had 60 inches of snow this year so we reclaimed two feet so we should have a good spring a good a good hatch but all in all we have an overabundance of just great eater walleye so that 14 to 19 inch stuff that's what i mean you catch those every day I mean, that, that's the fun of, of coming out here is the action. And our liberal uh, laws of, of five a day, ten in possession, and no slot restrictions. That makes it so, fun, too, doesn't it? It does. I mean, at the end of the day, you can just about guarantee a, a meal of fish, so, or a couple meals of fish. In our the northerns others... out here, so many people don't realize how good they really are. I do, I do enjoy showing northern, you know, people how to clean the the Y bones out, how good they can taste. Whether you're going to put them through the through the deep fryer, or through the the, you know, the seven up boiled seven up, 
or if you're going to pickle them, I like to pickle them and have a couple different batches so people can try them when they're here. Um, you know, there's just so many different things you can do with the fish. Aaron, you showed me the 7-Up fish and also how to take the bones out when we were out there a few years ago. I had a group of my oldest son's friends out here at the cabin over the 4th of July. The one thing they requested before they came out is that we have 7-Up pike. And <laughs> I, I made that. I made a bowl of it. And actually, I just smothered it in butter, poured it all into butter, and let them dig into it. And it was like a, a, a group of foxes on a rabbit. I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> they all ate a bunch, and they can't wait. That's the one thing they said when they said, thank you for the weekend. They said, we're coming back next year, and we're looking forward to the 7-Up again. Ah, good, good. <laughs> Uh, and, it, and it's, it's so, so easy, easy to, to do. Yes. Yeah, you boil you boil some seven up. If you want it to be more lemony lime, you put in a little bit of lime or lemon, or you put in Sprite versus seven up. There's a total different taste, but just changing that one part. Um, if it's flat seven up versus you know good fizzy, fizzy stuff. I mean, it's it, there's, there's just so many different things a guy can do, and it's so easy. But, there's no smell in the house. And That's really important. Ten, 10 minutes, and, and it's a great hors d'oeuvre as you're sitting around right after you get done fishing. It's incredible, and I highly recommend people try that. Debone the wall, the northern, and then just cut it. Connect with the captain up at the cabin here in just a few minutes, so we will be back on Fan Outdoors. The Common Man. You know and I know the number of people out there who just want to get people going. Weekdays at noon on The Fan. Last segment of Fan Outdoors, bring into the conversation our guest, Aaron McCoy, who I abruptly left, and unbeknownst to me, and I apologize for that, Aaron. <laughs> no problem. Sorry about that. I wasn't sure if it was me. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. I did it all by myself. <laughs> you did good. Um, uh, hey, as we continue our conversation a little bit, Aaron, those northerns that we caught they were bigger than life, and it was so much fun to do it. Are there still a large number of pike out there? Um, I honestly think the pike numbers are down a little bit in the last year or two. I happened to talk to the uh, Game and Fish Department here just a week ago. They're doing a little netting study just to see what they are finding. I haven't heard the uh, what they've learned from that yet. But, I mean, it's uh, we're still there's still plenty of areas to catch them. Uh, we're just not getting limits by accident like we were two years ago okay. or, or, beyond, or beyond. But, I mean, we're still, if, if pike is what people are after, we can still go for that and, 
And the biggest this year for me was has been a 48-inch pike. Um, we had another 39-inch that same day about 10 minutes later. So there, there is some still some big ones out here, um, and you just not you just never know when they're going to bite. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, say before I let you go, Aaron. I think we need to mention the fact that the fall is a pretty is a great time of year, and to mix it with a cast and blast at your uh, at your rentals would be an incredible opportunity. Absolutely. We do get a lot of people to do it, but there's still room for more. Guys can go out and find their, their – a lot of guys do it on water. A lot of guys do it on land out here, going out and hunting their birds. They'll, they'll hunt until 10 o'clock or so in the, in the morning. They generally come back around noon. They clean their birds. And I got plenty of time to take them out in the afternoon uh, and go do a, a little fishing along the way. So a four-hour fishing trip, I'll take care of everything. And when we come back in, I'll clean them as you run around and chase the birds that afternoon or evening. So it really works out well. Guys have a lot of fun doing that. Have you still got spots for guiding, Aaron? I do. I have. I did hire a couple more guides that I feel are, are some of the best guides on the lake with me. And and uh, so there's three of us that, that really work hard at this. And, uh, and no, we, we definitely do have a couple spots available yet. How can people get in touch with you, Aaron? Um, you can go online, uh, com, or easiest is just call me 701-351-6058. Again, one more time, 701-351-6058. Aaron, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it, and we'll, uh, we'll chat again. But good fishing to you, and good luck, buddy. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. Good luck. That's Aaron McCoy out in... Devil's Lake, North Dakota. It's uh, He's a great guy, and he's a great guy to spend a day with. I highly recommend it. Hey, uh, here's a, a little a tidbit for you. If you, are, uh, if you have some time Saturday, July 15th from noon to 4 o'clock, head out there and you can attend a free Bash on the Beach event, and that's at Izadis Resort. It's fun. It's the Wild on the Water Bass Fishing Tournament. The tournament activity is sold out, but there will be celebrities that are participating in the event, and when you're out there, um, you, can see, you, can, uh, you can feature, it features food, drinks, and you can purchase those, and there's hockey and fishing games to be going on, and you'll be able to witness and watch the leaderboard Interviews with our participants are out there, and a final weigh-in and opportunity will be held also. So you can meet the uh, selected participants. So that's Saturday, July 15th from 12 o'clock until 4 p.m. at Izadis Resort, and it's free. So if you'd like to head on over there, you certainly can do so. It'll be a great time, and you'll probably meet some of the wild players, and that'll be great fun also. Say, I, I told everybody that I was going to, uh, I was going to tell you some of the stories that we have, that we've had fishing, and I, I've got to be very honest, this lake that I'm sitting on the banks of has been absolutely on fire walleye-wise for the last few weeks, and it's not a secret because there's a lot of boats out here, and they're catching fish. 
and people are catching them various ways. We have caught them on crankbaits, on number five shad wraps, trolling probably a mile and a half uh, on on your electronics. And last night the the boys caught uh, they caught a couple of dandies and they absolutely crushed the baits. And we have uh, I have actually me. The guy who claims and really doesn't know a whole lot about walleyes, I'm having a blast doing it because we're catching fish. And I am, well, I'm not. Eric told me how to do it, and we settled into it, and we're just dragging a Lindy rig with a leech on it and going down the, the shoreline, and and it's their not far from the weeds or on the weed line, each day is a little different, and you've got to figure it out. And I said that to Nolan yesterday. They're going out to another little lake over here looking for smallies. And you, you've each time you go to a body of water, you have to figure out where they are and what they're doing. And these fish, too, have moved up and down the edge of the shore. But they're they're biting, and if you'd like to, just stop out and, and talk to uh, Denny or Kathy Fletcher at Fletcher's Bait because they've got not only the bait, but they also will show you maps of the lake and give you some insight as far as things you can do and what's going on. Um, but recommend Sock Lake. It's, uh, it's got quite a reputation now for walleyes, and they, uh, they have been biting. I've been out there for two or three days now. But I imagine I'll get out again tomorrow and, and give it a shot and try it. There's some weeds in the lake, some weeds growing up, and they're not, they're kind of the stringy, I call them a junk weed. And there goes a guy by right now trolling. Um, but the, the fish are there. Biggest fish of my life came off of this lake about a week and a half ago, and that was 30 and a half inches. It was a huge fish. And. The couple of gentlemen from St. Cloud that were on the lake just quit fishing and walked, watched as this fish walked me around the boat back and forth. And once he came up from the depths and I got just a peek at him, I thought, I'll never land this bugger. He's huge. And I fished four-pound pea line, the floral clear, and that too. Folks, I don't know what kind of line you're fishing. But get yourself a spool of this. It's four-pound P-line floral clear. And I'm putting on the uh, on the leader for the Lindy Rig six-pound floral clear. It's an incredible line. Uh, it's the best line I have ever found. And honest to goodness, I've got all my spinning tackle rigged up with it. I fish it for smallies. I fish it now for walleyes and we have caught a bunch of them. I just changed the line yesterday afternoon because it was stretched out uh, really, it was really kind of a mess. It was twisted and stretched really strong. And so I, I switched out parts of it. And when you do switch the line on a reel, you certainly don't have to take it all off. You take off just a little more than you're going to actually use when you're fishing and then tie it, tie two pieces together and spool it back on. And when you're spooling it, I always lay the spool down and make some cranks and then drop the rod tip and see if the line twists. If the line is twisted, turn the spool over and then crank it on and try it again because your line should not twist up when you're putting it on. Um, but it is. It's easy, and it is. It's great fun. 
uh, easy fishing, and we've caught a number of limits of fish. Had a fish fry last week. Little technical difficulties here on a cabin cast here in a Thursday fan outdoors. We're going to try to reconnect here with the captain in just a second. Since the music is playing now, and that means we've got about a minute left after this awkward get out. But we need more than that, so that's okay. The other thing that's going on, too, is we had a great time with the dogs this last weekend. Seven of them in the water, and all of them swimming. I mentioned earlier, it's great exercise, and it's also great fun. And But you can't do a whole lot of training with seven dogs in the water at one time. So just let it be fun and work on them at behaving. When you're going to go out and we can start getting in the field the 15th of July, and then you can start walking your dogs out in public lands, which I look forward to and I highly recommend. It's great fun. And get out there, and then uh, we can have fun with it. I uh, have been going out, like I said, we've been fishing leeches, dragging lindy rigs, and I've gone through, I think, two pounds of leeches so far since the couple of days before the 4th. And just keeping them in a refrigerator in an angle cooler and uh, keeping ice on them also when you're out in the boat, that helps a great deal if it's hot outside. Otherwise, this live bait tends to die too soon. And then it, it doesn't work. You know, if you're a walleye guy, you know all these things. If you're not a walleye person, it could be new to you. And that's one of the things that I've found that we have had success with is that you you need to talk to people and apologies for those who are experienced and expert. And for those who are not, that's kind of the way it goes. And what I did find worked better than anything else, and Eric is now on it also, is using pink hooks. And I got that from a gentleman out in Devil's Lake because he came to me when we were out there a few years ago for the broadcast for Fan Outdoors, and he handed me a package of them and said, this is my secret weapon. I use them all the time. So I happened to tie them on after not getting a bite and started catching fish. Now, did it make a difference? I just happened to be in the place that the fish were and were active? Maybe. Did it have? Did the pink hook make a difference? Not so sure but I stayed with it and kept catching fish. I also went down to a, a bullet weight for a Texas rig bass because I was getting hung up on weeds an awful lot on the uh, Lindy sinker, and that seemed to work better also. But one of the things that we did 
I was thinking I had to give it line, and toward the end, as you just held the rod, the fish actually grabbed hold of it and hung on pretty tight. And the other thing that we found is that we needed perch in the area because I believe these fish are feeding on small perch in the lake, which is, that's about all there is. There are some spot tail shiners out there. They'd be hovering in deep water. Now, these fish may take off and go deep. With the 90-degree weather we've had recently, the water temps are going up. They were in the high 60s a week ago, and they're now in the mid-70s as far as surface temp goes. But on the hummingbird depth finders that I use, and you can offset the water depth uh, depending if the water level is higher or lower. I make it a, a foot shallower than what the Lake Master Chip says, and I'm right on the mutton. And uh, the weed line out here breaks about 8 feet so you can just kind of put that in and know that if you shade everything, let's say seven feet, you can expect there to be weeds inside that on the on most occur most occasions, which is just uh, pretty much a, the thing that we've been doing out here. We've gone to a couple of different lakes. One lake that was a deep bite with jigs, with a something something jigs. The other lake that we went to today. It was we caught some fish on the something something swim jigs, and with a uh, Fat Albert Zoom trailer on it, and they gobbled it up. They just come up and grab hold of it, and Eric caught a couple of real real nice fish on the Northland, uh, the Northland. I can't think of the name of the jig now. A brown and orange jig with a craw trailer on it, and he uh, throwing it deep into the rushes. Ended up yanking him out using braided line, not 10-pound line. He was giving me a bad time about that all day, but it's not a competitive situation, so I told him I really don't care if I get him or not, and that's okay. So anyway, um, yes, it is Lou Cornicelli. I want to thank him, quite the potpourri of, of topics, and we have done that, and we'll keep doing it until, uh, until we run out of time this evening. And it's uh, that just being said, you need to get out and go fishing. It's like we uh, talked with Pat Arndt of the DNR earlier. You get somebody out there and you go get them, get especially the young people involved. Making time to do that, that's important. And if you take them fishing so that you can fish as hard as you want to fish, you're doing the child a disservice. You need to go out and find something that's going to bite for them. It does they don't care if it's a little bitty sunfish or even a perch. But just go out there and begin. There will come a time before you know it that they will become your equal, and as time goes on, they will extend the invitation to you to go because that will become important to, the, to them, that you go with them and they can show and teach you. I'm at that stage, and I'll just leave it at that, saying that it's, it's pretty cool. And it's pretty important. And it's pretty necessary in life also because that's how we continue this grand sport that we enjoy in the outdoors, whether it be fishing, hunting, or anything to do with Mother Nature. You go out there and I guarantee you, sometime you're going to notice something that you've never seen before and be amazed. It happens to me on an almost daily basis out there. Just keep your eyes open and look and be aware 
you'll find things you'll question. Stan Tequila has done that to me for the last number of years, and I, I see things now. I'm leaving jelly out on a tree for Orioles, and I'm filling hummingbird feeders and going out and actually chasing walls. The music is playing this time for real. So we will have to end this conversation and just let you know that we'll be back Saturday morning. Bob St. Pierre is back in the big chair. I'll be right here at the cabin. So I want to say thank you to Pat Arndt of the DNR, to Aaron McCoy of the DNR, and a good friend of ours, Lou Cornicelli of the Department of Natural Resources also for joining us and taking this little trip with us for you. So I'll just have to sign off and say... uh, For myself, Billy Hildebrand, I want to say thank you also to Tony Landry. And that being said, I will just say good night. See you Saturday morning, everybody. Have a great weekend. After.